okay? Whether the daughter is almost on the verge of death or, uh, or has actually died, at some point Matthew is making the point that there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do except Jesus. And he comes to, he comes to uh, Jairus, this, this synagogue leader, comes to Jesus. He's got this major crisis in his life. Think about it. Your child is near death. There is nothing. All the doctors, they can't do anything. And there's nothing anyone can do. And you're at your wit's end. You don't know where to go to. And the synagogue leader had heard about this Jesus guy. And that if he could just get there, he could change everything. And so he never, we see him never giving up trusting in Jesus. And so how is it that we can never, what, what does that mean, never giving up trusting in Jesus? Well, first of all, that means trusting Jesus when all hope is lost. It means trusting Jesus when all hope is lost. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. He says, my daughter's dead. And everybody probably around him said there was nothing else that can be done. What else can there be done? If the daughter has died, that's the way it is. People don't rise up from the dead. And so they said all hope was lost. There was nothing on earth to rescue this girl. So the man turns to the one person who can shake heaven and earth. He can come into any situation, turn it upside down. He turns in. When Jesus walks into a situation, all bets are off. Nothing is is set. He can do whatever it is that he wants to do. And that's the hardest time to trust in Jesus. But it's the exact time we must never stop trusting in Jesus. When, there is all, when all hope is gone, we may have the tendency to say, not even God could do anything in this situation. Even if Jesus showed up himself, he couldn't change whatever was going on. But that's when God begins to work his best. When all hope is lost. Now understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying trust Jesus only when there's, when there's no hope. I'm saying that our faith in Christ needs to be solid. And it needs to be uh, continuous. So that even when there is no hope, the faith that we have been building when times were good is still around when all hope is lost and it gets strengthened during those times. I'm not saying just trust in Christ when when there is no hope. I'm saying continue in that. There was nothing else this man could do. He was at the end of his rope. His daughter had died, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, you have to do something. Come and just lay hands on her. And listen to the faith of this guy. He says, if, if you lay your hand on her, she will live. He was continually trusting in Christ 
by trusting in him when there was no other hope. There was nothing else that could be done, but he still trusted in him. And notice he immediately went to Jesus, verse 18. It says, when he died, he went and came and bowed down before him. The man immediately went to Jesus. He'd been homesick with the girl when when, uh, uh, Jesus was fasting, with the with Matthew, remember this. It sounds the way Matthew makes it. It's still this continuing story of calling Matthew, and then later that day going into Matthew's home and having the, the tax collectors and sinners having dinner with them. And the Pharisees say, "You you don't have the right people that you're eating with." And John's disciples come to him and say, "You shouldn't be." You shouldn't be eating at all. You should be fasting. And he's got all this controversy. And this synagogue leader comes up and says, listen, I don't know what they're arguing about. I just know you can make the dead live. Come with me. And so Jesus follows him. He immediately went to Jesus. Didn't matter who he was with, what was going on at the time, who was arguing against him. He went to Jesus immediately. And by, so by, by trusting in Jesus when all hope is lost and trusting and immediately going to him, it, it, it teaches us to never give up trusting in Jesus. And we also trust Jesus to respond to our needs. Look in verse 19. Trust Jesus to respond to your needs. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now, Matthew uses a little play on word. Remember, he was, he was talking about Matthew at the beginning of this kind of whole story. And he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. And we've heard that over and over as we're looking in Matthew. He calls, he calls Peter and Andrew, follow me. They drop their nets and they follow Jesus. And James and John, Jesus says, follow me. They drop their nets they f- and follow Jesus. And now this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I need you to raise my dead daughter. And it says, Jesus followed him. Now, it's not in the same way that the disciples followed Jesus. They were following Jesus as disciples, as students, as, as, his, as his followers. But it shows that when somebody places even just the little amount of faith into Jesus, he responds in powerful ways. And they turned, uh, Jesus stopped what he was doing, stopped the argument, stopped his dinner, and he began to follow this man. It's one thing, there, there's one thing that at our time in Scripture, our time in worship, our time with other believers should teach us that our God responds powerfully to faith. Now, I'm not talking about the the. Uh, name it and claim it kind of faith movement. I'm not talking about those things, but God responds to, to our faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says this, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You have to believe that there is a God. And that that God is a rewarder of those who seek after him. And when you do, God responds powerfully. That is to say, we talk, he's talking about salvation right here. It is impossible to please God without faith. But that faith, it doesn't have to be this 
huge, huge amount of faith or this, this um, unbelievable faith. It just takes a spark. Just a spark of faith, and God responds. Look what he says in Matthew 17, 20. The disciples were trying to cast out a demon. They weren't able to cast out this demon. And Jesus comes and speaks, and they leave, and they say, why can't we? And he says, because of the littleness of your faith. And that word, their littleness, has got to do with the quality of faith more than the amount of faith. He says, your quality of faith is just, is just not where it needs to be. But he says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed in, in the ancient Near East, the smallest thing he could think of, he says, if you have just that much faith, he says, you will say to this mountain, move from here, move from here to there, and it will move, and some things will be impossible for you. Is that what it says? It says, nothing will be impossible for you. If there's just a little bit of faith, and we say, God, I trust you. I don't know how you're going to get me out of this mess. I don't know how you're going to correct this financial issue. I don't know how you're going to correct this issue in my life. I don't know how, but I trust you will come in and turn things upside down. Just a spark of faith, faith, and it sets the world on fire. John 6, 28 and 29, Jesus said, he said, therefore, they said to him, Jesus is, uh, sorry, the disciples are talking to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They wanted to do the things God wanted them to do. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. When we place our faith in God for salvation and trust only in him, that is the work of God. And it's the issue of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. The point is we must never give up trusting in Jesus. No matter the situation, no matter how hard it is, I know that's easier to preach than it is to live. I understand that. But it's, it's, the, it's the right principle. When I was in high school, maybe a, a sophomore or a or a junior, somewhere in that time frame. Um, we lived on 40 acres outside of town, southeast Kansas, and we had a we we uh, we had a single wide, you know, trailer home. Dad had Dad and I built on an extension to kind of double the size of it. Um, we had a a barn that. Uh, was you know a barn and then we had a pig barn where we were raising pigs we had five or six sows a great big old boar and and we were producing pigs a lot and we had chickens and we had only five cows we had a lady who had the the horse on the land who would use it to graze and i was the last boy at home so i had to uh uh feed and water make sure all the livestock was fed and and take care of everything and uh my, my point is there was, this, there was this life that we were having. And there was a time dad came to mom and my sister who was left at home and, and me. I mean, we were the last two to leave the nest. And he said to us, we're going to lose the farm. 
Now, I don't know what happened. Dad didn't talk about financial stuff. I'm probably in trouble talking to you guys about this. But uh, he, he, we lost the farm. And it was during the 80s, so I'm guessing it was about the time of the savings and loan. It might have something to do. Dad was a welder, and he, he was worked, and he was laid off, and worked, and laid off. And I don't know exactly what happened, but at a, as a senior and junior, within a month, we were going to be homeless. There was no place to go. And I wasn't ready to process that. Now, we were believers. Um, I had, I had uh, grown in my faith. I was involved in some ministries, even in, in high school. But even then, I remember going to mom and saying, well, what, what are we going to do and where are we going to go? And my mom, in, in this kind of calm, unshakable faith, she says, well, you know, I don't know, but God will work it out. And uh, now I know my mom, she was probably a wreck, <laughs> right? She got two kids at home that were in high school still, and they don't, she doesn't know in a month where they're going to lay their head and, and where are we going to live. And, and, you know, eventually we sold off our livestock and, and got rid of all that. And, and you know what? Believe it or not, God provided. How about that? There was a little bit of property that became available, and I don't know how, what wheeling and dealing my dad did, but we were able to move our house uh, to, that, uh, to that location. It was only 10 acres, but it was okay. And, and the, it was rented for a little bit, then to be owned, and the rent was ridiculously low. I mean, seriously, like 10 bucks a month or something like that until dad could buy it. It was God provided for us. And I remember even that young thinking, even when, when all hope is lost, when there's nothing that anyone can do, God steps in. And we, I can tell you story after story of Rhonda and I having situations where we're like, well, I'm not sure how we're going to work this, so God needs to show up, right? And faithfully, he does, because it's just a little bit of faith, and God responds. But it doesn't start, the faith doesn't start in the middle of the crisis. It starts when things are, are okay, and we develop our faith, and we increase our faith then. And then when we go through the trying times, there's a maturity that happens, and it stretches our faith. And so there is this, this principle about never give up trusting in Jesus. When you begin your relationship with Christ, that faith that you have in Christ, it is built in the crisis of your life. Now, it doesn't start in the crisis, but I'm also saying it shouldn't end in your crisis. There's way too many times where we go through a hard time and we say, I'm done with God. If this is what it means to follow God, I'm done with Him. And our faith shouldn't end in our crisis. It should, be, it should continue through the crisis. We must never give up trusting in Jesus. The second point I think we can see in this passage is that you get to Jesus however you can. 
Get to Jesus however you can. Look in verse 20 through 22 in this woman. This, this story, this whole passage is pretty incredible because it's actually two miracle stories kind of wrapped into one story. Jesus is in the middle of a crisis. He's going to go raise a dead girl back to life. He's in the middle of that mission. And in the middle of that, at this critical moment, there's a woman who shows up with a need. Matthew says she's been bleeding for 12 years, and she does whatever it takes to get to Jesus. So how is it that we get to Jesus however we can? It's important to know that to get to Jesus, first of all, you recognize your uncleanliness. Recognize your uncleanliness. Look in 20. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. See, I think the main problem with this woman wasn't her bleeding. Now follow me on this. It's a bad thing that she was bleeding for 12 years. But the way this reads is that it probably began... This bleeding began when she hit puberty, if you're following me. And this bleeding continued on for 12 years, and her cycle was never done. And the scripture says that Leviticus 15 talks about this, and I'll let you read it because of the sensitivity of the content. But the short version is this. During a menstrual cycle, the woman was unclean, and anything she touched was unclean. And this woman's cycle was never done. That is, for 12 years, she was unclean. She couldn't worship in the sanctuary. She couldn't touch anybody, or that uncleanliness would touch someone else. She couldn't uh, participate in normal life because she was unclean all the time. And if she touched a bed or a chair, it would be unclean until the evening. And, if she, w- and, and she would be unclean for seven days. And then after the cycle was over, the woman would, would be clean. But again, this woman would never, ever, it sounds like to me, would never be clean. And Leviticus 5, 25-30 speaks of this condition. It says that this condition of uncleanliness would last until the blood stopped And then she had to wait seven more days, and then she could make an offering, then she could be clean. My point is, this woman had been ostracized from all of life, and all of of religious life, all of civil life. She She was abandoned by them. She probably wasn't going to die from this bleeding. She might have been anemic. She might have been weak and frail. But I don't believe she was going to die because it was 12 years and she'd gone to doctors, I could imagine, and trying to figure out a way to take care of this and nothing else was going to work. And so she recognized, I'm unclean and there has to be something done. And here is this Jesus. And if I could just touch his robe, I will be clean. I will be healed. I can get back to life as it should be. She had to do something, so she turned to Jesus. See, in our lives, there needs to be confession. 
If you're a lost person and you want Jesus into your life, there needs to be a confession. And that starts with a repentance. I, a confession just means saying the same thing about your sin as God says. It is, it is talking to God and saying, I recognize I'm a sinner because of these things. And, and you agree with him that they are sin. It's not just you know some sort of disease or whatever, but I am sinful and I need forgiveness and then turning from that. But if you're a believer... And, and you don't feel like maybe God's been working in your life, there's a chance it's because there's uncleanliness in your life. Now, I'm not saying that that's always the case. I'm not saying trials come into her life because of sin, some specific sin in her life. I'm not saying that, but it's a good place to examine our lives to see if that's the case. Listen to what it says in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the hands, the, the Lord's hands is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ears so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, a recognition of our sinfulness should begin in our path toward God. We get to God however we can, and the first step of that is recognizing our uncleanliness, examining our heart, and removing anything that may not be pleasing to Him. And then, once we recognize that, we don't sit there and simply say, Yep, I'm a sinner, I know that, now let's move on. We do, the second thing we see is we do whatever it takes to remove the uncleanliness. Look in verse 1, she was say, 21, she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. The other gospels kind of talk about this crowd that was around Jesus and everybody was pressing up against him. And here's this unclean woman who comes in and she starts bumping through the crowd and everyone she touches, by the way, becomes unclean. She's like, I don't care, I got to get to him. And I don't know if she's crawling on the ground to get through the feet of people. I don't know if she's elbowing people, shoving them. She doesn't know. Uh, she, uh, I, don't, I don't know. But she is trying to get to him, getting to him however she can. And she does whatever it takes to get to him. And she reaches out and just grabs the hem of his garment. An unclean thing that touches something that is clean will transfer that uncleanliness to the clean thing. That's the way it works. That's the way Scripture talks about it, except when it talks about Jesus. Every time Jesus touched someone unclean, his cleanliness transferred to the unclean. And she touched his garment and his power. He says in other things, some power left me. Who touched me? Some power left me. The disciples said, are you kidding me? There's a crowd around you. Everyone's touching you. But this woman had power transferred to her because of her faith to recognize her cleanliness, and I get to get to Jesus to get rid of it. She had the passion to bring Jesus into her crisis and to cleanse her. And do we have that kind of passion? Do we have the passion to remove whatever uncleanliness that's inside of us? 
Jesus said earlier when we were going through Matthew 5 that we must do whatever it takes to remove sin in our lives. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, it says this, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is not telling us to mutilate ourselves or to harm ourselves. He's simply saying, whatever it takes to get sin out of your life, get rid of it. You might remember um, the... uh, Oh, I just lost it. The movie with Kirk Cameron and uh, the marriage and fireproof. Thank you. Fireproof. Yes. You might remember that. And when he decided he was going to make his marriage work and surrender his life to God, he was going to do whatever it takes to get sin out of his life. And so he takes his computer outside, starts smashing it with a bat. So he doesn't have that temptation anymore. Now, I'm not saying we have to do that, but we might need to do that. Whatever it takes to get the sin out of our life, to remove the uncleanliness. She had the passion to get to Jesus, to remove her uncleanliness. She did whatever it took to get to her and then trust Jesus to work. She trusted him to do it. Look in verse 22. But turning and seeing her, Jesus' daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Though we could see that the woman's trust in Jesus to heal in her act of reaching out and touching that garment. Now, he wasn't saying that it's her, it's the idea that her faith was placed in the right thing. The faith that is placed in the right thing is the powerful kind of faith. When he says, Your faith has made you well, it wasn't. It wasn't because of the woman, because she was, she was made well. Her faith placed in Christ, Christ is the one doing the work. That's what made her well. She had her faith placed in the right thing. I hope I'm communicating what I want to there. Jesus essentially saying, your faith placed in me is well placed because I'm the one who's going to do the healing. It wasn't her touch that brought the healing. It wasn't her, her passion to get to Christ. It was that she had faith in Christ, and Christ did the healing. When we're driven by the passion to, when we're driven by passion of, for anything, we're, gonna, we're going to jump any hurdle, we're going to go through any obstacle, we're going to conquer any battle that's coming toward us. And if we have that passion in Christ and in our spiritual life and to get through our crisis, then we'll have a desire to get close to Christ. We're going to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. There was a, an Olympic horse rider, an equestrian, uh, talking about her, her passion and her desire in, the, in, in her event. And they asked, how do you get the horse to jump? She says, how does your horse know when it has to leap the hedges and the hurdles? And why do some horses turn away or stumble? And the woman said this. She said, that's simple. You tear your heart out of your body and you throw it over the hedge and the horse knows how desperate you are to catch up to your heart so it leaps. 
I don't know how that works in, with the horse and all that, but the idea is that she communicated her passion to get over this hurdle. And she wasn't going to let any hurdle stop her from going, and the horse understood that. It's the idea of passion. It's the idea of passion saying, I'm going to get to Jesus no matter what it takes. And if I feel like there's a, there's a brass ceiling in every room I'm in, and when I pray it just bounces off, I'm still going to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to examine my heart, get rid of the uncleanliness. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of that, and I'm going to trust that he's going to work because just because I feel like he's not listening to me, I know because the promises of the word that he hears me if I'm one of his believers. If I'm removing the uncleanliness of my life and I am praying to him, whether I feel like he's hearing me isn't the issue. We never give up trusting in Jesus, and we get to Jesus however we can. And in the middle of our crises, we look for Jesus' power. The rest of this passage speaks of the power. This woman is healed. She's left. Again, Mark and, Matt, Mark and Luke speak a little bit more about this woman, but, but she, he, she's healed, and she's gone. And you've got to think, Jairus, this synagogue leader, is saying, Jesus, my daughter's dead. And you're sitting here worrying about other people. We're on our way to my daughter's house. But he, he goes, they, they finally end up to the original purpose, getting to Jairus' houses and raising the daughter from the dead. Look, when we, we want to look for Jesus' power and we're looking for how he's going to show up in our crisis, we're like, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to get you everywhere I can, so I'm just going to trust you're going to work. I don't know how it's going to be. When we start looking for that power, first of all, the world is going to doubt that Jesus is going to do anything. Look in the 23 and 24. At once the woman was made well. Oh, sorry. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Jesus sees the mourners who are making racket. In Jewish life, they would hire mourners. Someone died, they'd go pay somebody, and that person would come, and they'd start crying because this person died, and, and they, would, they would play instruments or whatever. They, there would be this, this mourning, this group of mourners who were professional mourners, and they'd go, and, and they were just making this racket outside, crying and wailing because this woman died, and they were making, and, and I'm, I'm assuming the more that you mourned, the louder you mourned, the more tears you cried, the better the money was, is my guess. And so they were making a racket. They were just going to town with their mourning, and Jesus says, oh, stop your noise. The girl's just sleeping, and they started laughing. What does Jesus know about this situation? How can Jesus come in and do anything different? There's no need, there's no need to, for Jesus to show up because it's already determined what has happened. And Jesus says there's no need for mourning because the girl's just sleeping. See, the world's going to doubt Jesus' power, but you need to look for his power in the crisis. They're going to say there's nothing you can do. 
The girl is dead. There's nothing. Start mourning. Start going on with life. We've assessed the situation. We know what's going on. We're worldly enough and wise enough to know that there's nothing going to happen to the girl that's not been happened a hundred times before. Nothing's going to happen in this situation. Give up. That's what the world would tell you. But Jairus was looking for Jesus' power, even though the world was doubting that. See, the world doubts Jesus' power, but believers, the followers of Jesus, they will witness Jesus' power. 25, when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. She was dead. And he took her by the hand, and she stood up. You think the parents had anything to say about that? Do you think that they might have shouted or danced or cried or hugged the girl or a hundred different emotions? What would they have done? They witness witness Jesus' power. He reaches out, he touches the hand, and the girl raises from the dead. But it was only for those who had faith in Jesus. Jairus, who displayed his faith, the disciples who had faith in Jesus, they, they were the ones who were able to witness this. The world didn't have to see it. Jesus says, I'm going to show it to those who believe in me. And then they'll see my power. And their faith will be made even stronger. The professional mourners who wanted money for their tears. you got to think about this. They're outside crying still. Jesus went in. They laughed, which shows they really weren't mourning. Crying, crying, then they laugh. Then they're crying, and all of a sudden this girl walks out the door. I'm assuming they're saying, am I getting paid for this? I mean, because she, she, she was supposed to be dead, and now, now she's not. Their mourning was in vain because there was nothing to mourn. The world mourns. There's nothing that can be done, but believers will see God's power and they can rejoice and see that God has has power in all those situations. And look what it says that they will do. Jesus' power is going to be told to others. It says, this news spread throughout all that land. See, when you look for Jesus' power in your crisis... The world's going to doubt the power. Those who believe will witness Jesus' power. But either way, it's going to be told. Of course, the mom and dad, they're going to tell everyone they know, our daughter died and now she's not. She's alive because Jesus walked in and touched her and now she's alive. This Jesus has power and you need to know him. And they would proclaim it to anybody who would hear. But you know what? The professional mourners told the story too, I'm sure. We were there telling their friends, they come home, how much you make today? Not much. <laughs> Why? Well, we were mourning this dead girl, and then she walks out the door. What are you talking about? Well, this guy named Jesus shows up, and everything changed. She was dead. I took her pulse. We looked in the situation. We made the agreement, and then next thing I know, this dead girl's walking out, and there are these, I'm sure they were telling. The news of this event spread everywhere because Jesus walked into a crisis. He touched the situation, and everything changed. And you know what? The world sees that. 
They see it in our life. They see the crisis that is going on in our life, and they say, well, I know how I'd handle it, but that Jesus freak is just trusting in Jesus. And Jesus shows up and changes everything. And then the world says, man, how did that happen? And they'll say, boy, that's lucky, right? Or boy, what happened there? The planets must have been aligned just right for that to happen. They might say a million different things, and that's our opportunity to say, no way, my, the, the creator and sustainer of life, Jesus, my Savior and Lord, he came in and he rescued me. And he touched my life and everything changed. See, the world's going to doubt Jesus' power. And there might be even those who, are called, who call themselves believers who would doubt Jesus' power. They'll say, Jesus will never do that, or he can't ever use that person, or whatever it might be. But let him say it. Because when he comes in and changes it, then you've got a story to tell. And you've got a testimony to, to share. It's only those who never give up trusting in Christ, those who get to Jesus however they can. It's those people who will witness the transforming power of Christ. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think. Maybe you're going through a crisis today. You're saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what God has in store. I don't know how Jesus is going to show up. I've been asking him to do it for years, and he hasn't. Don't let that reduce your faith. Let it increase your faith. Maybe there's something in your life you've been praying, and and there's something in your life you need to to examine and remove from your life. I'm not saying you're going through the crisis simply because of sin. You may be right with God and short account with Him, so I'm not trying to put a burden on you that, that you don't need. But examine your heart. Examine your heart and see if there is something that God is saying, remove this so I can work. God has done an amazing work in our life. If we're a believer, we have been raised from the dead. And we have a story to tell. Maybe we just need to be more about sharing that with others. God, we come to you and ask that you would move in our heart right now. You would shine a light on anything that would need to be removed. And God, if there is... If, if we are in right relationship with you, then God, bring encouragement into our crisis. And let us know that we can trust you and you are going to work. It may not be the way we want. It may not even be the relief from the pain, but it will be you coming into our life and making us more like you. God, however it is you want to work, we ask that you would, that you would, we, we give you the freedom to work in our lives that way so that we become more like you be useful for you in the kingdom. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.